Hey guys, just a quick message before we get into this week's episode. You've heard me talk about the Camp Ojibwa History Project Bricks of Fame for the past few weeks now. It's a really cool program. Camp was super generous to allow us to use the space around the Collegiate Week bench for commemorative bricks for people to be able to buy a permanent lasting spot right there on the campgrounds, put it at one of the most hallowed spots on all of camp's grounds, and to be kind enough to let the proceeds help further the project. I told you before it was going to be a limited time promotion and that time is coming to a close. So January 31st will be the last day you'll be able to buy a Brick of Fame. Uh, not just this year, but ever. This is a one-time deal and we're going to have the bricks available through the month of January, but then that's it. So if you have not done so, I implore you to head over to campojibblehistory.org, click on Bricks of Fame, don't let this chance pass you by. It's a super cool way to permanently put your name or a family member's name or a friend's name right there on the grounds of Camp Ojibwa and also at the same time support the Camp Ojibwa History Project going forward and doing the things we, we're going to do, the things we have done, and some of the cool projects that are coming up in the future. So that's it. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I am your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. As promised, here we are with episode two of this week's double shot, Hank Kuransky. The Kuransky boys, as previously noted, Quite a series of athletic accomplishments in the 1960s at Camp Ojibwa, and a couple of great guys, a lot of fun to talk to. Let's get right to it. Episode two this week, Hank Karansky, right here on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. If I could save time in a First and foremost, please state your name and years at camp. Hank Karansky, and I was here from uh, 1960 to 1969. 60 to 63 as a camper. I was in cabins 10, 12, and 13 for two years. And uh, two years as JC, and four years as a senior counselor. Tell me first, how did you first come to know about Ojibwa at all? Uh, through my dad, uh, Abe Karansky. Um what we were, Joel and I were trying to figure out, my brother Joel Karansky, we were mm -hmm. trying to figure out uh, how we got, inter how, how my dad found out about Ojibwa. And we figured it's probably because he was friends with Milton Eisenstein and Al Stein, two doctors who used to come up here in the, you know, 40s and 50s, maybe wow. the 60s, I don't know. And, um, you know, we were um, maybe 12, 13, and 14, uh, myself and we have an older brother, Ralph Karansky, he's a year okay. older than us. And... Um, you know, he was looking for a camp for the summer, and they 
probably turned him onto it. And so he came up here as a camp doctor in 1959 uh, for two weeks. And uh, then um, Al and Mickey paid a visit, you know, the recruiting trip and uh, <laughs> told us all about camp. And they had pictures. And I, I don't remember what else they had. But, of course, we were eager to go. Sure. And uh, in 1960, we all started. Wow. Uh, Joel was in cabin 8. I was in cabin 10. And Ralph was in cabin 12. Was this your first overnight experience? Yeah, first overnight camp, yeah. Wow. And, uh, we, you know, we loved it from the start, yeah. playing sports every day and the competition and, you know, uh, meeting kids from other parts of the city and stuff. Mm. We, we grew up in Highland Park, and uh, there were a lot of kids in our, uh, um, in our cabin from, uh, uh, north, uh, from north part of Chicago, from the north side. They went to Mather and Sullivan and Sen and those high schools. And a gotcha. good number of kids from the south side, too. They went to South Shore and, and a couple other schools down on the south side of Chicago. So it was a uh, just a great experience from the start. Yeah, I think it was during the '60s that the migration sort of starts. Prior to that, it had really been city kids, yeah, and even a little south side, and then it starts to move up to the north suburbs through the through 60s. the '60s. Yeah, yeah. My, one of my best friends from uh, I guess I was in junior high then, Jack Nussbaum, who was a, a legendary figure here while he was a, a camper. He didn't ever, ever come back as a counselor, but he was here, and so it helped to have a really good friend here already. But we were nice. probably the first, some among the first kids from Highland Park to wow to come come here. Yeah. Nice. So you had the camp call. What's the first memory you have of actually getting here, of being at camp? It was um, throwing around a 16-inch softball, because I'd never played 16-inch softball before, even though, you know, I'm from the Chicago area. But in the suburbs, you know, we played Little League and, you know, 12-inch with mitts, and I never played with um, uh, without mitts with a big ball like that. But I have huge hands. <laughs> For the home listener, he truly has huge hands. <laughs> and... Uh, so I took to the game immediately sure. and, uh, I, I loved it from the start. So I was very good at it. I was, a, would never been here before and, you know, nobody really knew me and we had the tryouts for pineapple league and I was a first pick. So I, I knew I was going to be good at the sport. Nice. And, uh, and our, our team was really funny that year. The name of the team was the clowns <laughs> and Artie Berman, who was another It's funny. I was just talking with Stu out here before I came in and Artie Berman would have been one of Dizzy Nitzkin's, uh, um, uh, peers when they were all okay. here they were mm-hmm. all all part of that group and so Artie Berman who was a total cut up named our team the clowns <laughs> and I was the first pick and Louis Schwartz who was probably one of the greatest athletes ever to be up here wow um was in cabin six and back then pineapple league was cabin six through ten and okay. um Louis was in cabin six and he Artie Berman picked him as our second pick and nobody could believe he took a kid from cabin six as a second pick and Louie was probably, maybe after Gary Greenberg, who was uh, another, he, I, he's been part of camp for, his first year was 1960 also, and mm. we were in Cabin 10 together, and we, you know, have been close friends ever since. Um, probably Louie was a, probably the next best player in the league, and uh, wow. he was only, uh, he, he must have been, uh, I was 13, he was probably 10 or 11, he was that good. Wow. And we went through the season undefeated, went all the way to the <laughs> final game, and, of course, we lost in the final to uh, the team that had, like, the fourth pick. They barely scabbed into the playoffs. <laughs> the Clowns were a great team for a year and now in the dustbin of history. So, wow. You know. And in those days, softball was the Ojibwe sport. That was the sport, yeah. right. Um, it, it dominated everything. Of course, we had all the other sports, but um, we didn't really have – we had a little bit of soccer. Mm. And, um, you know, what, what I noticed is the um, – uh, 
the the rollerblade rink, the um, yeah, the skating the rink, hockey rink. Yeah. yeah, the hockey rink, which is fantastic. I was a really good skater. I would have loved that up here. Mm. I, I actually played four years of intramural hockey at Wisconsin. Oh wow! Um, if they had had that here, I would have been in heaven. But they <laughs> did not have anything like that. Huh. One of the great improvements in camp, I would say. Yeah, we've definitely added a couple of other sports along the way for yeah. sure. But in those days, you you really played softball, basketball, some soccer. Yeah. Football with some, a little bit of football, gotcha. not much. And, um, yeah, th- those are the sports. But, yeah. you, but you were a sports guy, so you kind of right. took to it right away. Right, right. And um, basketball started growing a lot while I was here. It became really big, really really competitive. There's some very good players that were up here while I was at camp also. Yeah. Um, That's something uh, your brother and I were just talking about is the difference in that is sort of the, the tail end of Camp Ojibwe really being the premier – athletes of the city specifically jewish athletes of the yeah. city coming up yeah. here and really i mean talking about guys who are starting on college teams yep. and eventually some pro players like hershey and things like that at that you're sort of tapering off at that point on exactly. Not that exactly right um basketball by the time i was a junior counselor basketball was becoming the dominant sport because mm-hmm. like you said there were so many good players who were playing on on high school teams, Joel and I both played four years of basketball in Highland Park High School, mm. and Louis Schwartz uh, played for Roosevelt for four years. He started playing in one A and played all the way through his senior year. Wow! Um, Lee Cohn was a great player. He went to Mather, um, uh, and then um, uh, we we really sharpened our skills playing here. And um, there would I don't know if they still have um, uh, SC versus JC competition sure, and absolutely. all that stuff. And of course, the senior counselors would dominate in every every sport. But back then, um, there were so many good players who were junior counselors. Um, Joel and me, and Gary Greenberg, and Louis Schwartz, and uh, Larry Heyman, and Billy Birkenfield mm. were um, all great. All all of us played for our high school teams, and uh, we would kill the senior counselors we would crush them every time we played them wow and louis was still a camper then and so the senior counselors got mad at us for using a camper <laughs> and so <laughs> so we said okay we won't use louis anymore and we beat the senior counselors even worse so it was it's really a reversal <laughs> that's really funny these days it, it comes and goes it's in cycles you know we'll have yeah. two or three really athletic years and then we'll have a couple of years that aren't necessarily as athletic yeah. especially with the guys who stick around and stay as counselors so right that's interesting. Uh, camp has changed a lot in that fashion, too, with uh, just in general. Kids can't take their summers and come up here anymore because they have to yeah. stay home and do football or they sure. have to stay home and do all the, the yeah. non-obligated things that their coaches make them do for their sports at home. Yeah. I, I, I have uh, three grandsons. They live in Appleton, which is oh. only a couple hours away. Quick they would love up. camp, but they're already programmed into um, baseball leagues in the summer and getting ready for f- – Pop Warner football in the fall, and they, they're they're already programmed like that. And camp would actually be almost an intrusion into that. Yeah. So, um, uh, but but they would love it up here. You know, they're total sports kids. They're eleven, ten, and seven. And uh, oh wow, they would, they would just have a picnic up here. They would love it. But, you know, like you said, their kids are are so programmed now. But yeah, I don't for know. Sure. Maybe I can, I can talk my daughter into getting them up here. That they would they would just <laughs> be in prep camp or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that was one of the sort of reasons for the split to begin with, or the, um, having a four week camp four as an option seasons, yeah, yeah. was to sort of start to work around that stuff. Right. Right. As a camper and a athletic camper, tell me some of your, uh, 
sports highlights? Some of the moments oh, on, the, on the fields where you so reigned. many that, that were just great. Um, you know, first playing collegiate week was unbelievable. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm sure almost every kid that's been here can name every collegiate week team they were on every year. Sure. And um, my first year I was the third pick in um, um, Yogi Rothstein was our first pick. Yogi was a great guy, tremendous guy. And um, Jeff Melnick was our second pick. We were Wisconsin, and we finished. We were pretty close. We were in it the whole week. We finished third or fourth. Mm. And the next year, I was a second pick um, on Navy, and we finished second in the week. And we had a, a reversal in the obstacle race. We were Steve Lewis's. I forget his team. Maybe Indiana. They ran away with the week. They had a clinch, you know, by you know the fourth or fifth day. Wow! So it was a fight <laughs> for second place, and uh, um, and uh, our kid. And the final event was the obstacle race, and we knew we were in the same heat with uh, the other team, and uh, whoever won the obstacle race was going to get second. And whoever ran the last leg, I, is the last leg still the road? Yes, like, okay. absolutely. So the kid coming up the road, and Henry Baum was taking the names of the, the finishers, and our kid gave his name and not the school. And then the kid from the other team came in next, and he gave the school, and so Henry wrote that down first and put a second in the obstacle race, which put us in third place for the week. Wow. And so when they announced the winners – they announced the team that we had beaten the obstacle race a second. And we, wait a minute, we beat them in the obstacle race. We have to be second. And everybody went back, checked the records, said, yes, that's right. <laughs> and so there was a reversal in the standings, and we ended up second. And we got our trophies. <laughs> well, I'm glad to see collegiate week controversy was something right. that has always been a part of Camp yeah. Ojibwa. <laughs> the, the Karanskis were, were great tracksters. We were, ah. we were all, all fast runners. Um, my first year, I won the junior track meet, and Joel was a midget. He won the midget track meet. Wow. And then um, the next year, um, I was a senior with, you know, I was in cabin 12, but with kids that were, you know, two and three years older. But then my senior year, I won the senior track meet, and then Joel won the senior track meet the year after that. I think Ralph won the senior track meet the wow. year before me. So <laughs> the Kranskis were all known for their prowess at running fast. Yeah, <laughs> for guess. sure. Wow. But, um, uh, you know, being, um, I, I think Joel and I have the distinction of being the only one ones in collegiate, the only brother teams who, brothers who were one one in collegiate week. Wow. I was one one in 1963 and he was one one in 1964. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. I don't know if any other brothers can, can claim that distinction. Now, how did you do the year that you were the one? I never finished worse than fifth, but never better than second. <laughs> so oh. we were always, one of, you know, always in it, but never, never won wow. it. Joel was one of the most successful collegiate week athletes. He won as a camper and as a counselor. Wow. And um, that, um, you know, it was always fun just playing in the leagues and being on really good watermelon league teams. Oh. We had our, our uh, my senior year. I, I was the first pick in watermelon league, and um, and my brother was a JC. He was that was when JCs played in watermelon league, mm -hmm. and um, my brother was uh, one of the the captains, and um, they gave him. I think he was probably of the six captains. He was probably the least talented, so they gave him first pick of the JCs, and he picked Chip Braun who had been a camper and been gone for several years and came back, and he's a tremendous athlete. And and Chip passed away uh, many years ago. Mm. He had um, early cancer and uh, passed away. Really nice guy. And then he drew first pick, and so he took me. And so we had uh, a really strong team. We went through the season undefeated. 
We had two really close games against Lee Gimble's St. Louis Cardinals. I remember that. <laughs> Beat them both times. We were undefeated again going into the final game. And and it was a very close game again. And um, it was uh, we were winning by a run. They had the bases loaded with two out in the bottom of the seventh. And their batter hit a pop-up. And we thought, oh, great. We're going to win it, champions. And our second baseman dropped it. Oh. Two runs scored, and that was oh. it. <laughs> we lost right there. So I, I'm a, a good athlete who had a lot of almost. A lot of almost. Right, all the forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> but memories for me, but not yeah. for anyone else. You know? <laughs> for sure. Well, as important as sports is to Camp Ojibwe, yeah. uh, another aspect of camp that's always been very important and closely tied to it is the Ojibwe stage yeah. and the entertainment side of camp. So tell me a little bit about your parts a, of that. I have a great story. I'm, I'm not much of a stage person. I, I can carry a tune, but I can't, you know, really perform or sing or anything like that. But um, when I was uh, my last year as a camper on our team, uh, we had um, uh, we we put on a version of um, of, uh, of the musical Mr. President. Okay. And so my only role was to sing a solo. I was the president, but I didn't have any acting or anything like that. And I, I was to come out on stage, and, and the song was It Gets Lonely in the White House. And it was a song about how you get lonely in the White House when you're sitting there and have to do your thinking in a rocking chair. And so I sat in a rocking chair on stage, and I had a bathrobe and a towel on, like, you know, I'm, there's nothing to do. I'm going to go. T-. And, you know, it gets hot under those lights up sure. there. And so I really was going to go take a shower afterwards. And so I got up on stage, and I sat in my rocking chair, and I started to sing, and, and the whole... Everyone in the audience started laughing and howling and pointing, and I couldn't figure out why. And I had on my bathrobe, and I really I didn't have anything on underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and Lou Fletcher, a fantastic musical director, was you know directing from right in front of the stage, and he's going like this: "Put your close your legs." Close your, everyone can, and you know you're up on stage, and everybody's down, right, and they get straight up. Right up. <laughs> and after about. 15 seconds, I, I realized what was, I went like that, <laughs> closed my legs, <laughs> and tried to finish my song. <laughs> and it went right away and took a shower. <laughs> wow. That is fantastic. <laughs> One of the all-time great beavers in Ojibwe <laughs> history, I'm sure. Um, so tell me a little bit about being in the cabin. You were, you were both obviously a camper, and came back as a staff man. Were there people who you really had great connections with, either as your camp- campers when you were a counselor or the other way around that were your counselors? Yeah, you yeah. The, the guys that you, you know, go up through the cabins with, uh, you know, you stay friends with Gary Greenberg. You know, I mentioned him. I've been in touch with him ever since. Um, mm. uh, a few other people, um, you know, like um, Louis Lansman and Jeff Greengoss and... Uh, Oh gosh, Ricky Canoff. Ricky Canoff's passed away. He was a, he was a fantastic musician, very intense kid, and and died at a young age. Uh, mm. But I kept in touch with him. Um, and then um, um, a couple of guys that were a little older, um, Lee Cohn. I stayed in touch with him for a while, and uh, um, you know you always try and catch up on on the Ojibwe people through other people that you know. Sure, of course, and. Um, uh, some of the guys that were Joel's age, um, Mark Lieberman and Speck Stein, Mark Stein, um, I kind of kept in touch with them. And, uh, and then, uh, uh eventually, um, 
I, I brought one of my best friends from college up here for one year because he needed a job in the summer, Bob nice. Novacell. So he came <laughs> over. And we all did that. Gary brought his friend, Harold Eisenman, and uh, Joel brought his friend, Rex, was a, a music guy, and he was here for you. Wow. So it was, it was really, uh, you know, we all would bring our friends if they, they wanted a job in the summer. So, um, Nice. Yeah. But uh, I I probably could think of more. I just can't think of any off the top of my head right now. Well, that's one of the uh, aspects of the project that I want to sort of be able to pass along to everyone else is it never takes long for camp guys to catch up. Like you can put two camp guys in a room and and they just pick right up and go. So it really is just about connecting the dots and and giving people an opportunity to reconnect if they want to. And so hopefully the project becomes a place, uh, sort of a hub for people to go through and, and reach out and contact people they haven't thought about in 50 years and things like that. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, cabin life, uh, specifically in that time when I get the impression that Pearl, uh, well, Alan Pearl, but mostly Pearl, ran a pretty tight ship in terms of cabins. So uh, how much sort of shenanigans were you able to get away with? (laughs) Uh, What kind of after tap stuff went on? As campers, really, not that much. Although it's funny, Joel and I walked through cabin 12 just to take a look, and there are a couple guys in there. And um, we asked them if they had passed their three rafter test yet, mm. or their four. We, you know, do they still have the four pair test? And the, do they swim around the island? Uh, still? They they don't. Uh, I don't know when they took the island swim out. Yeah, but um, they do the four pair test. They just don't necessarily call it that. But I know it's just back and forth. Just like a swimming proficiency yeah. kind mm-hmm. of test. Absolutely. So we we developed our four rafter test. You had to get up in the rafters and, and take four laps across it. So we asked the kids if they still <laughs> do that and said, oh, we play rafter tag all the time. So I imagine they're, they're up there a lot. We used to do that. Um, and Louis Landsman had a, a suitcase full of candy that he kept up in the rafters. Wow. And he would only ration it out, you know, <laughs> certain times. If you were good, you could get some of Louis' candy. Sure. And we got so angry at him for being such a tight ass with the candy that somebody went up there and s- smashed the lock open. <laughs> and nice. Sm- it, just gave everyone all the candy. <laughs> Louie was so angry. I'll, I'll never forget that, but he got over it, I think. <laughs> That's what he gets for trying to keep a suitcase full of candy in the place. <laughs> do, do the JCs and senior concerts still get a, a night out? Like they do. Out? Uh, they, they get three nights out a week, actually. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. really? Wow. I think we got one or two. I can't remember. Was that two? Yeah. And uh, that was a big deal when you were a JC to, you know, oh, a night out, go into town. What, so uh, what's in town? What do you go to do? What, well, what places did well, you Well, of course, out? the first thing you look for are girls from other camps. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, uh, but then, you know, we, oh, Scott Levenfeld would be another name who, uh, you know, I was good friends with mm. uh, who was here. And uh, at the same time I was, he was a senior counselor when I was a senior counselor. And... I'll never forget, Scott and I met some girls in town, and we had nowhere to go with them, and we brought them back to camp. Really smart. <laughs> and, of course, Denny caught us. Right. <laughs> and and I'll never forget, he, he gave one of the girls a kick in the butt. to get the hell out of here. Wow. And, and so Scott and I, being the, the, the brilliant guys that we were, said, don't go away. We'll, we'll come back and get you. We came back and got him and brought him back to camp again, and Denny caught us again. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> Oh man, we were there's stuff like that, but um, you know there, I, there there's it, it seems like you know if if camps change in one way, it's a kinder, gentler camp. It's much mm. more aware of what's going on, and you know people people could be terrorized up here, and it would mm. be very hard on them. And you know, looking back on that, you think, did we really do that to those kids? Were we really that hard on them? And uh, um, 
uh, we used to, <laughs> we had a, a, I think for a couple of years where we would lie in the middle of the campus at night and just be still as we could. And it was very dark then. We always wait for no moon to be out and wait for somebody to walk by and grab their leg <laughs> and just freak them out. <laughs> I don't know why we thought that was cool, but it definitely freaked out anyone. I'm sure. <laughs> I can see a lot of screams coming out. Right, of right. Um, well, God. you mentioned that talking about terrorizing kids, or that that can be an aspect of things. Talk to me a little bit about the Braves. Uh, you were part of that organization. Yeah, the Braves. That, that was very interesting. Um, I, how do they do the Braves now? Is well, it open to everyone? Or It do, is. They... they uh, one of the things I talked to your brother about is that I think one of the biggest changes of camp over the years has been uh, a change in philosophy from sort of when you guys were here, it was the, the all-star athletes, the haves and the have-nots. Yes, was really sort of right. You got voted into the Braves. Exactly. And now camp just in general, but specifically the Braves, are much more all-inclusive. Yeah. First yeah. powwow, everyone that can get in is in. There's no you know first, second, third powwow. Right. We still do two powwows, but it, it's not um, some guys get in one, some guys get in the other. All that stuff is right. gone. So a lot of that sort of, Mm, I guess you could see it as favoritism or the politicking, a lot of that kind of stuff is gone. Yeah, that's good. I, I was the chief of the Braves, and I remember that was that was difficult to, um, you know, you do the voting on the kids, and, you know, kids wouldn't get in, and, and you, you could you could, you could sort of understand why, but, you know, on the other hand, you go, well, they they're not really, don't really know the kid that well, and how do, how do you vote on that? Yeah. But, um, but that was neat, you know, having the Braves, and, and the powwows were taken very seriously, mm-hmm. and... Um, um, you know, the initiation was kind of corny when you look back on it, but we all took it very seriously. Sure. And, and there was, uh, you know, always a moral question to answer. Who would you vote out if you had to pick a kid? And, mm. you know, you're supposed to say, well, I vote out myself. But, you know, sometimes a kid would say, oh, him, I, he, how, how'd he get in? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, sure. And so, you know, I, I'm glad that it's, you know, more like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, the it, physical side of the initiation is definitely gone. That that's yeah. something that you know. It's I think it falls under the category of things we used to do at camp that wouldn't be acceptable today. Right, right. Like dipper shower. Yes, dip, <laughs> dipper shower is gone, huh? <laughs> yes. Okay. Dipper shower finally uh, found its way out in the early '90s, which is that? probably twenty or thirty years too long. But <laughs> who am I to judge? Right. I wasn't here, so I don't. Right. Know. Were right. you a dipper or a shower guy? Oh, shower. There were very few kids that took a dip. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it's one of the most easily divisive questions at camp. You were, If you were here during that time, you were either a dip guy or you were a yeah. shower guy. There's no one who really sort of went back and forth. No, there wasn't. You were, <laughs> you're right about that. Right. As we get sort of to wrapping things up a little bit, um, what I'd like to ask everyone is you're a grown-up now, we'll say, um, a couple of years under your belt, and you can look back on life a little bit. Tell me about the influence camp had on your life. Um really strong, really powerful, really positive for me um, because of um, first learning to be more self-sufficient, you know, being responsible for keeping your area clean and making your bed and looking after your own stuff. Um, Just that in itself is a good beginning. And then, um, uh, you know, camp, as you said, Alan Pearl ran a pretty tight ship. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, being responsible for keeping your cabin clean and coming out at a, at a set time and going to activities and, uh, you know, you know now kids obviously are so overscheduled. They're, they're every minute is accounted for. But sure, um, you know, I remember long summers with nothing to do, and that's a nice memory. And it was sort of camp that got me ready to, um, you know, be more responsible for myself. Mm. 
and then and then the friends that you make you you stay close to them for as long as you're at camp and then you know in some cases many years after um it's always interesting to talk to like you said when you get two Ojibwe guys in a room and they start talking it's like you, you can't shut them up but um exactly. it's interesting to see who stayed in touch with who and and mm. uh and all that um so uh uh you know, those are pretty important aspects, I think, for any adolescent to go through. You know, I started camp when I was 12, which I thought, gosh, I'm way too old to be starting camp. But, you know, I think that's a good age to start. I probably would have loved it when I, if I had been six or seven and started. Sure. But, uh, you know, uh, that's a good age to start. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a teacher. That's been my profession for my adult life. And I teach high school kids. And, uh, you know, the kids grow up at different rates, and, and you see yeah. the influences and the values that kids have. And I think Camp Ojibwe instills certain core values that are, are very important for, you know, being successful in, in high school and then college and then into the adult world. And, uh, yeah. and, and I, I like the way the campus changed. I like the direction Denny's taken it and, you know, the things he's done. Denny's a teacher, and so he's seen the change in schools, and I think he's mm. brought that to Ojibwe as well. And um, you know, less emphasis on competition and more equality and and inclusiveness, I think, are really important. Yeah. And, um, and those are, are big things. Just just having a project like this, you know, is is a wonderful thing, and uh, um, it will hopefully eventually capture the whole spirit of, you know, my goodness, it's it's ninety years almost. Yeah, so. absolutely. Thousands of boys have come through yeah. these gates, and. There's something so uh, Denny called Denny nailed it. We were talking about camp a little while ago, and we were talking about um, to doing a video and trying to yeah. capture some stuff there. And uh, he defined it so great. He said it's easy to feel, hard to explain. Yeah, and that says so much about what camp is. There's this connection. There's this feeling. I mean, you and I, you and I have never met prior to yesterday, and we could sit here and talk camp stories <laughs> right. all day. Like right. it just, it's that feeling, and it's it's more than just the stories though. It's about that sort of brotherhood and that love and all yeah. that stuff that goes together. And so, yeah, that for me, I I hope that this is a piece of that that helps kind of spread the Ojibwe umbrella a little further and get some guys yeah. who maybe we have lost contact with back under and yeah, things like I think that. That's a great idea. That's a fantastic idea. Is this the first time, full disclosure, we're at Camp Ojibwe right now and uh, you and your brother are here visiting and, right. and we're catching you guys here. Uh, is this the first time you guys have been back in a while or do you guys do? It's the first time I've been back. <laughs> wow. Like at all? At all. Wow. Right. Um, 1970, I think I could, well, I, I used to come up also, I, I, I hated to leave. And so once I became a junior counselor, I, I would stay for the whole two weeks of post-camp. Nice. And just work cleaning up the camp and putting things away. And that was really a trip. And I came up in 1970 with uh, my girlfriend from college. and wow. um, And she had a separate room. And, and uh, <laughs> that's how much I liked it. I wanted her to see Camp Ojibwe. That's awesome. And, yeah. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I haven't been back since 1970. So wow. um, I guess a lot has changed. <laughs> yeah, I live in Los Angeles. That's part of it, and I've lived there for sure. oh. <laughs> I've lived there for the last 40 years. So okay. distance has been kind of a factor. But there's been times where I thought, oh, I should get up to Ojibwe and just see it. But this this time, Joel and I said, yeah, we're going to come up. I think Joel Joel was a camp doctor here for a few years mm. back in the 90s or early 2000s. He probably has that information, but. So he's been back, and, and he's probably a little more in touch with, you know, Ojibwe people than I am. But, um, yeah, this is the first time I've been back since 1970. That's awesome. Well, the last thing I always ask everyone, tell me one or two great camp stories. <laughs> oh, man. Um, 
Oh, that, that's really a hard question. You know, it's really a hard question. I think, you know, as sure. a coach, you know, when you're a senior counselor and you're coaching all the all the teams and everything, um, I remember one collegiate week, um, my team was way out of it and, uh, you know, was getting near the end of the week. And uh, we had a competition against Joel's team, and he was fighting for first. Mm. And uh, we had a kid on our team, Les Robinson, who was a little kid, always in trouble, kind of infamous. And uh, uh, after the competition was over, uh, our, our teams had a fake rumble. Like we started having a fake fight between the two teams. <laughs> and this kid, Les Robinson, somehow lost his pants in the, in, in the rumble. <laughs> Les Robinson got pants. And nobody knows. I, I don't know who did it. Maybe it was Joel's team. Maybe it was mine. But there was like kind of chaos. And so both teams got penalized five points. Oh, and and for my team it didn't matter, but I protested to Denny. I said, "You can't penalize Joel's team. He's in the fight. This is not fair. He could win the week." Denny kept his, kept his rules. He said, "You broke the rules. You violated wow. the good conduct." Both teams penalized five points. I felt so bad, but Joel's team won the week. Ah, so uh, <laughs> that was a little absolution there. Um, Excellent. I already told you a couple of the stories about. <laughs> Getting in trouble and stuff. Oh, one one year, I, I actually didn't start the, I think it was 66 or 67. Um, I didn't um, I didn't come up to camp that year. I had a summer job, and I just hated it. I couldn't stand it. And so after about three or four weeks, I said, I'm just going to camp. I don't care. And I packed a bag. I didn't tell my parents. And Joel drove me to the airport. I took a plane up to Rhinelander. I hitchhiked to camp. And I had a, a big suitcase I lugged along after me. And uh, I remember walking into camp. I got let off out on 45. And I walked into camp. And I walked. The first thing you come to is a far field. And I walked through the gate. And there was, you know, a couple of games going on out there. And everyone turned around and stared at me. Here was Hank walking through, down the road and through the gate with a suitcase. I came up to camp that year. <laughs> I don't know fantastic. what people thought about that, but it was <laughs> it was weird. But it, I had a great rest of the summer. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank this you for doing great. this, Chris. It's this been is... great to meet you, and great to get you on the mic. Likewise, been my pleasure. I, I hope you get hundreds and hundreds more, and and it comes out. It's a huge project. I yeah. really admire you for doing it. But Thanks. I agree with the importance that we all feel. Okay, that is it. Another episode in the books. Hank Karansky. First time we've done uh, brothers back-to-back like that, as opposed to brothers in the same podcast, Schwartz Boys. Hope everyone enjoyed listening to those stories from the 60s, hearing a couple of great guys tell some great stories. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Email me, Christopher at CampoJibboHistory.org. Or, of course, just check out the website, CampoJibboHistory.org. I mentioned the Bricks of Fame at the top of the show. I'm going to mention them again because time is running out. We're down to one month left. I'm also going to be sending out a big email blast talking all about the bricks. So look for that in your mailbox if you're not subscribed. Of course, you can do that over at campojibbohistory.org as well. To all of you out there, I hope you have a very happy new year. Celebrate responsibly. And as for me, I will not be in Times Square, 
but I will be having a cigar. going to hold for just a second while Elliot is uh, shuffling papers. Hi, Elliot. Elliot was already in cabin 13 when I was here. He was a champion swimmer. He would always take points in the backstroke and let's see, what else, what else, Elliot, did you take points in? Hmm. 